let's face it, when you're in the fundraising business, like you're in the decision engineering business is what you're doing. You're trying to get people to make a decision of, yes, I'm going to give. Yes, I'm going to give a large amount. Yes, I'm going to continue giving. So in order to do that, you have to understand how the brain works. And what I learned is that it doesn't understand all the facts and the figures and the stats that you're throwing at it. The logical brain will rationalize the decision it wants to make. But if you really want to grip somebody and pull them into the opportunity, you have to lead with a story. It has to make them feel something. Welcome to Cause and Purpose, the show about leaders, innovators, and change agents working on the front lines to solve some of the world's greatest social challenges. I'm Mike Spear, and today's guest is the founder and CEO of Next After, Tim Kachuriak. If you're in the fundraising space at all and you haven't heard of Next After, you should definitely look them up. They're a cutting-edge fundraising research lab and consultancy that works with nonprofit organizations to help them better understand and inspire their donors to give generously. They've conducted thousands of online experiments and regularly published the results for the entire sector to learn from. In this episode, Tim shares a bit about his past, what inspires him, and gives some very tactical advice that you can put to use with your organizations today. You grew up in Pittsburgh. Tell me what life is like as a kid. And I'm always curious as well, where people get their philanthropic instinct. Did it come from parents or was it, did you not have a philanthropic upbringing? Yeah. So growing up in the Berg, Pittsburgh is a very much a hardworking blue collar town where people are as hard as like their ax handles. Yeah, I loved living there. The Steelers, the Pirates, the glory days of the Pittsburgh Penguins. So big sports town. It was like a wonderland. We would just go camping in our backyard. And it was just like this, this really cool thing as a kid. My mom was actually really lonely during the time. I didn't realize this at the time. My dad was traveling a ton. And I remember watching old home videos and the one year we're opening up presents and it's like all these things like for, you know, kids that don't have a dad around, like the thing you throw the ball at and it like comes back and you, you catch it yourself kind of thing because dad's not there to play catch and stuff. And that's where I grew up. I went to college in Pittsburgh, graduated right after 9-11, uh, which is a tough time to enter into the job force, especially, you know, for somebody that wanted to break into advertising marketing, which was really what my passion was. But I worked at a country club all during high school and college nine years. And I used to joke that I had 432 aunts and uncles that were captains of industry. And the guy that was actually the president of the country club was the president of the second largest ad agency in Pittsburgh. So I went and met with him and did my little dog and pony show for him. He's like, oh, I'd love to hire you. And then he started to wring his hands and look down. He's like, but you know, we just laid off 30 people yesterday. And 9-11 hit our industry hard, our agency harder. Sorry, can't help you. And that was kind of my experience coming out of college. So it was like, six months of wandering in the wilderness, just trying to find somebody that would give me a shot. And I ended up meeting like a serial entrepreneur at a golf outing. And we started talking a little bit and he, uh, he said, what are you looking to get into? And I told him and he said, well, maybe you could do a couple little projects for some of my, my little businesses that I operate. And I was like, great. And he's like, you know, why don't you start your own business? And I was like, well, I don't know how to do that. He's like, I do. We've got an incubator on the second floor of our office building. I'll give you a desk. I'll introduce you to people. I'll be your partner. And the rest is up to you, kids. So I was like, that sounds sweet. What do I got to lose? I'm living in my parents' basement at the time. I just graduated college. I've got no romantic interests. I have no overhead. So it's like, what do you got to lose? So that was actually my first job experience coming out of college is running my own business for about five years. And I mean, it was pretty fun. No dependence, nothing to lose. That's like the perfect time to get into something like that. Exactly. I think it's an interesting experience too, because I feel like a lot of startup entrepreneurs uh, can relate to that as well as 
a lot of nonprofit people. You know, as a startup founder, you have an idea you, you want to run with, you think it's going to be great, and you just go sometimes. And in the cause sector, like usually something happens to you or you discover something you, you know, you're passionate about changing the world in a certain way. And you don't necessarily have that business background or training or acumen. So even though yours was a, a for-profit endeavor, mm -hmm. what are some of the things that you learned from those crazy days? I think first and foremost, I got in touch with my deep-rooted insecurity. Here's somebody like who has never been in the workforce, and now I'm having to go make it happen every single day. So I learned a ton about business. I learned about you know, going and getting customers and keeping them happy and eventually built a, a team and had payroll and like all the things related to that, where like you don't have money in the bank on Monday and you got to make payroll on Friday. So I think it was like a really great grooming period for me personally. And this kind of like merges into like how I got into the nonprofit sector. So I did that for about five years and loved what I was doing. Totally just wired to do this kind of stuff. And we basically started off as just, we'll do anything that pays money and then gravitated more towards interactive marketing and digital. And at this time, this is like when like the general market ad agencies, they didn't have in-house capabilities to do that stuff. And so they would outsource it to little boutiques like our shop. So we were hooked up with a lot of the, the ad agencies in Pittsburgh. Love what I was doing. Wasn't really thrilled about the clients we were working with. Not that they were bad. Like we had a, like a lot of legal clients and a lot of like automotive dealerships. Nothing wrong with car dealers and lawyers, but it just didn't really spin my wheels. About five years into it, my church was actually doing a capital campaign to build a new building. And I was like, well, you know, I'll do all the, all the marketing stuff for that. And it was the first time that I was doing something I felt like I was wired to do, but like for a cause I believed in. Once you get bit by that bug, it's hard to go back and make car dealership websites, right? That was the point where I was like, I think it's time to try something new. And a good friend of mine had just made a bold career move himself. He was a financial planner. He shut down his practice and he went and accepted a job as an executive vice president at a nonprofit in South Florida. So I called him up one day. I'm like, hey, man, what's going on down there? He's like, dude, you should come check this out. I think you could really help us. I just hired this new VP of ops. The guy is a legit rocket scientist, used to work for DirecTV sending satellites into outer space, MIT guy, you'll love them. So I leave Pittsburgh, there's six inches of snow on the ground. I get to Fort Lauderdale, the ambient temperature is 81 degrees and step off the plane. My interview is at this place called the Aruba Beach Cafe, which is like right on A1A Avenue, right on the sand. It was just totally not a fair fight. Like all the sliding glass doors were open, the waves are crashing onto the beach, the sea breeze is blowing through my hair and you know, the guy's playing the little bling, 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 you know, I'm just like, I'm in. So get back to Pittsburgh in the matter of 60 days, we sold our house, we sold our business and moved from Pittsburgh to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The crazy part is the day I got there, the head of the organization who had been there for 35 years, who was kind of like a celebrity, like leader of the organization had a heart attack. He was hospitalized for nine months and then he passed away. So we went from being a $36 million a year organization to 18 and 12 months. So it was like this like death spiral that we were in. And I was hired to do like digital communications stuff. And then they're like, whatever you're doing on the internet, figure out how that stuff actually makes money because we're hemorrhaging right now. So that was like my first like violent shove into fundraising. And I didn't really like it. I didn't understand it. I had no kind of grounding. But what I discovered is that there's agencies that work with nonprofits and help them with their fundraising. And we worked with one in Dallas. And that's basically how I got to Dallas, which is a whole nother story. How did you guys get through that in, in this day and age, you know, with the COVID pandemic going on, like a lot of businesses are having that resilience challenge. What did that mean for your organization to have that huge obstacle placed in front of you? And how did you guys adapt to it? 
we had to figure out like how to do our work in an era without our founder, which means we had to pivot. So I actually got to be part of like the team that put together a series of like five key new initiatives. And we had this whole new mandate and pitched it to the board and and they were behind it. They were on board with it for about six months. And they're like, nah, we just want to go back to what we were doing in the past. And so like, that was kind of like the writing on the wall for me that it was time to move on. Did you have to make staffing cuts? Yes. The first six months I was there, it was like, it seemed like every Friday we were having people that were leaving and were shutting on different aspects of the organization. It was tough. It was really, really tough. How'd you guys get through that? What were the, some of the tools that you used to, to adapt in the face of a really difficult time like that? I was just really looking ahead. There's a time for like mourning and, and being sad over like losing colleagues and things, but you have to figure out what's next after, right? So like what's going to happen next. And for me, I, I would always just focus on, all right, what are we going to do tomorrow to try to overcome this, this challenge? I imagine that led to a lot of tough conversations with donors and, and board members and folks like that. How did they respond when you started having those tougher conversations? Yeah. I mean, at one point, like when we were in our um, like death spiral, we did something that was kind of radical. So we had a fully staffed like call center and we had to lay off the entire call center. So we had each person in the company from like the CEO down to the person that cleans the floors did like a four hour shift in the call center every single week. And... What we were doing is just calling and thanking donors. And it was awesome. I mean, it was like, it was really cool because just being able to be on the other side of that and talk to some of the people that were supporting us and just thank them for their support and letting them know what was going on. And two things happened. I think number one, it was the first month that we actually like got in the black. And the second thing that happened is that it rejuvenated the staff. Like every single person was like so much more fired up about their work. And so to me, that was like a great lesson of everybody's in the customer service business. Everyone's in the, is in the donor fundraising business inside of a nonprofit organization. And it's not something to be taken for granted. These are your partners and you got to treat them as such. Yeah, no, absolutely. The folks who were not in marketing and fundraising, they got on the, on the phone also with folks. Yeah, everybody. Yeah. Awesome. It's amazing. You know, as a donor, that's a phenomenal experience to have someone, a leader at an organization or someone who is not a, you know, soliciting your gift, mm -hmm. reach out like that. It's, it's cool to hear the other side where there's there's intrinsic value for those people as well to reconnect with our supporter base. Yeah. What was it that turned you around on fundraising? The uh, the agency we work with is a company called KMA Direct Communications based in Dallas. And the head of that organization, he helped me understand how what you're doing in fundraising is connecting people to opportunities to invest in something that they care deeply about. So it's almost like you're kind of like an impact investment banker, right? Where you get to basically connect people to causes that they're deeply passionate about. And then all of a sudden it became very appealing to me. And I said, well, that sounds really cool. You know, tell me more. And so he, he said, well, you know, why don't you come to Dallas? And I was like, I don't know what your prospects are here. He's like, we've been doing direct mail for 30 years and we're trying to move into this brave new digital world. Maybe you can help us start a digital fundraising division. So. So I did. And that's how I got to Dallas. I sort of had the same philosophy. And I, you know, I used to have a lot of trouble just personally making asks like that. And I think a lot of development directors and development managers have a little bit of stress and struggle around this. I always think of it as, you know, you, you sort of said it, but it's an opportunity. You're giving someone an opportunity to invest or be a part of something they see as deeply personal for them. It's investing in a change they want to see in the world. Is there a formula to how to make an ask like that so that it seems like that opportunity versus something subtractive? Yeah. What we focus a lot on is trying to help nonprofit organizations think through and articulate their value proposition. If you go and ask a nonprofit, hey, what do you do? Like they can go on for 
days and days. And they'll talk all about what they do. But if you ask them a very simple yet profound question, which is if I'm the ideal donor for your organization, why should I give to you rather than some other organization or not at all? They freeze and oftentimes they can't answer. And by the way, like this is systemic inside of our sector because we did a study a few years back called the Why Should I Give to You study, a nonprofit value proposition index study where we asked 127 different organizations across multiple different verticals. We asked them that question four different ways. So we called them on the phone, went to the 1-800 number, called the number, hey, they're going to give a gift. Why you rather than someone else? Not at all. And then we listened and we transcribed their value proposition. We contacted them via email, filled out the contact us form. Same thing. We messaged them direct message on Facebook. And then we also like looked at their donation page to see how they answered that question. What we found is that nonprofits aren't great at answering that question. Oftentimes what we find is they speak with forked tongue, right? So they might say one thing in one channel and something else in a completely different channel. And so it's, it's this simple fundamental question that everybody should be prepared to answer. And yet oftentimes we don't have a good answer for that. Now we're really going down a rabbit hole here. I, I mean, what you're talking about basically is brand. The strength of a brand, the brand identity is how you know if you should invest in organization A or organization B that are doing ostensibly the same cause related work. That's right. And based on like some of our testing and research, we found that there's like four key dimension to a, an effective value proposition. The first one is appeal. It has to be something that people like, something that they want. It has to be a change that like a mass amount of people want to see made in the world. So that's appeal. That's number one. Number two, it has to have exclusivity. If something you're doing is really appealing, but there's 800 organizations doing the same thing, the number of organizations is diluting the potency of your value proposition, right? So like it has to be exclusive and unique. It has to be credible. I've got to believe it. I've got to believe that you are the one to be able to make this change happen. And then finally, it has to be communicated clearly. So clarity is the last piece of that. And we've tested like really focusing on optimizing each of those different dimensions of value proposition. We find that like when you can get all those things working together, it's pretty powerful. You know, I know from watching some of your videos and from speaking to you previously, and I'm sure that the audience can tell already, you're a very gifted storyteller. <laughs> How did you fall in love with storytelling? What was it about that medium, the, the ability to craft the narrative that you just became passionate about? I think it's because it's like, it, it is the most effective way to get a message across. And, it, and I think it's like the more and more that I've studied just really how our brains work and actually how we process information and ultimately how we make decisions. Because let's face it, when you're in the fundraising business, like you're in the decision engineering business is what you're doing. You're trying to get people to make a decision of, yes, I'm going to give. Yes, I'm going to give a large amount. Yes, I'm going to continue giving. So in order to do that, you have to understand how the brain works. And what I learned is that the part of the brain that's actually responsible for decision-making has zero capacity for language, right? So like it doesn't understand all the facts and the figures and the stats that you're throwing at it. The logical brain will rationalize the decision it wants to make. But if you really want to grip somebody and pull them into the opportunity, you have to lead with a story. It has to make them feel something. And so that's, that's why I think story is... It's just, it's so exciting. And I'm, I'm glad that it's becoming a, a topic of greater conversation in our space. Yeah. You, you threw out some buzzwords there. I'm, I'm assuming you're, you're familiar with Simon Sinek and, oh, and sure. his work. Yeah. For an organization that has not invested in their own storytelling, in addition to the framework you mentioned, the four pillars, how would an organization go from being purely program related to beginning a marketing program and starting to craft 
the stories they want to tell that'll reach a specific audience. So I think like one problem I see oftentimes is that if you read a lot of like fundraising messages or nonprofit messages, they read like news stories. They just present almost formulaic like fact. Here's here's the problem. Here's the solution. And here's here's how much it costs kind of thing. And like that just doesn't like compute as well as actually like singling out and trying the story of one specific individual and drawing somebody in to the conversation by just kind of like telling one person's story and using that as an extrapolation of like a larger problem. So that's one way to kind of get into honing in on that, so to speak. You know, you're a, you're a founder and uh, on the board of a nonprofit organization, the Human Coalition. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? What was the inspiration for starting that and, and what does it do? Yeah, the Human Coalition was actually birthed out of an opportunity to really be able to help women that are in crisis pregnancy situations be able to connect with resources that can help them. And what we learned is that when somebody is is faced with that problem, the first place that they turn is the internet. And they're going and trying to Google a solution for that. And the neat thing about that is that like you can be able to reach people at their point of need and connect them to the resources that they need. And that was the birth of that. And what it's grown into is is really just uh, an organization that's about like trying to save as many babies as possible. One thing I really appreciated about the website and kind of the storytelling you're doing is a, a lot of pro-life organizations, at least the ones that I've seen, tend to have these really sort of gruesome storylines. Right? right. And yours doesn't. The Human Coalition, from what I can tell, is very much about hope and sort of the, the opportunity of having a child and stuff like that. How do you differentiate with other pro-life organizations that are out there? And how did that messaging evolve for you guys? First and foremost, I think we've always taken very much a data-driven approach because it's primarily a digitally based organization. Like we can actually kind of like track everything. So we've constructed a funnel and we can measure the conversion rates to each different stage of the funnel. And what that's enabled us to do is really to optimize every stage of the process. And it started off as just trying to like basically you know, solve the marketing challenge. Uh, and what's evolved to is, is, okay, we can go and get the phone to ring, but if somebody's not there to answer the phone, then that's another challenge. So then we started a call center where we can actually be able to field those calls and answer, you know, 95% of those calls whenever they come in. And then it turned into the challenge of how do we optimize, you know, the consultation part of it. And so we started like testing all different aspects of atmospherics. Like how do we make the people that come in, our clients feel comfortable in the process, testing like different ways of actually laying out the furniture in the room. Like, for example, like one thing we learned is like having some sort of piece of furniture that separates the counselor from the person that's coming in is critically important to make them feel comfortable and having big fluffy pillows, because what would happen is people would come in, they grab a big fluffy pillow and they sit on the the couch and the table across from, from the counselor. So like things like that can make a huge difference to make that a successful engagement. What's the end result that you're going for? Like, what is the goal of that funnel? Ultimately, to um, you know, get more people to experience the joy of of being a parent, honestly, like that's that is the ultimate goal is to save a save a child and save a family. I'm curious as well if somebody doesn't succeed in that path, like if they end up deciding to go ahead and have an abortion, how do you guys handle that as an organization? We come around them and and just are continue to be there to be able to help them and just support them and and whatever decision they make. So like it's not coerced. What we've what we've learned as we've collected more data and we've you know had at this point, like tens of thousands of conversations with women, oftentimes they're in a situation where they're being coerced and forced into making a decision they don't really want to make. And and part of what we provide is a support system and a continuum of care so that regardless of whatever the outcome is, they're able to receive that care and, and be comforted. Was that always the goal from the outset? They're 
many aspects of the abortion issue that you could have tackled. I'm just curious, just for you personally, how do you define the parameters of what this organization specifically will work on? And, and why was that most meaningful to you? I think it's really just about like meeting the person at the point of, of, of need. Like that's the thing is if you realize that the people that are most in need of your services are not like flipping through the yellow pages or driving by looking at billboards, which is how most of the people in the pro-life movement have advertised in years, but they're actually searching online, like then you need to be there. So like, you know, for us, it was really about solving like the marketing issue related to that. And what are some of the successes that have come out of it? Like what's a, what's a story that you look at, you know, from people that have gone through the program that make it worthwhile for you? <laughs> It's the smiling little baby faces that when people are able to connect with their child and it's, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's awesome. So we've talked a little bit about Next After already. I'm curious, give, give us the elevator pitch for what Next After is and give us a little bit of the inspiration behind it, why it was something that you became passionate about, wanted to get involved in, in growing. Sure. Yeah. So Next After is really three things. So we're a fundraising research lab, we're a consultancy and we're a training institute. And like each of those three pillars supports what I think is our unique value proposition. Starting with the research, we do two kinds of research. So we do like forensic research and applied research. On the forensic side, we're analyzing large amounts of data across the sector. And what we're looking for in the data is patterns that lead to opportunities to really unlock greater digital fundraising performance. The challenge we've run into is that the kind of data that we're most interested in analyzing either doesn't exist or is not readily accessible. Because what we're most interested in is trying to experience the charity, the nonprofit from the donor's point of view. So to get that perspective, we found the best way is really just to become donors ourselves. And so what we do is about four or five times a year, uh, we'll launch one of these major mystery donor studies where we'll go and subscribe to hundreds of different organizations. We'll monitor everything that they send us. We'll analyze it. We'll wait for them to ask us to give a financial gift. And when they do, we respond by giving a, an online donation as small as $20, as large as $5,000. And then we continue to monitor like how those organizations engage with us once we've crossed from being a casual visitor to subscriber to donor. And Mike, it's, it's fascinating work. What's, what's, what's always so interesting is, is how wildly varying the communication experience is from organization to organization. And when we do one of these studies, oftentimes I'll have two organizations that are similar in terms of their size, their scope, their area of focus, and yet they have two radically different communication practices. So when we see that, we say, okay, if organization A is doing one thing and organization B is doing something else, how do we know what works best? So we take a lot of the insights that we glean from the mystery donor work and we use it to power the applied research we do, where we're basically using the web as not just a channel, but as a, as a platform to run rigorous scientific experiments so that we can understand what works and what doesn't work. So it becomes a laboratory in essence. And I think to date, we've, we've documented over 2,500 different experiments across you know, everything from Facebook ads to email campaigns, to landing pages, to individual little you know, micro elements inside of each of those different things. And we've learned some stuff, right? I mean, you know, being a consultant, like everybody looks at you like you have all the answers and deep down inside, we know we don't. Yeah, you know, when I discovered testing, like that was like so liberating. I was like, you know, I mean, this could work or this could work. Let's go try it. Let's go let the market help us understand what, what's, what's most effective. So we take all the stuff we do in the research lab. We bring it over to the two other parts of our company. The Next After Institute's all about training. We've developed tons of resources. Most of them are free. So like, we do ebooks and templates and guides and webinars and all that kind of stuff. 
In the last couple of years, we've developed eight different certification courses in everything from like email fundraising optimization, landing page optimization, turning Facebook likes into donors, copywriting for nonprofits. And that's really about trying to equip more nonprofit fundraisers to be more effective in digital fundraising. I think the reason why digital marketing and fundraising like sucks so bad is because the barriers to entry are so low. Like anybody could just go like blast out an email or post something on Facebook. And so that's led to the proliferation of really crappy digital marketing. So that's what we're trying to undo with the Institute. And then the final piece is our consultancy. And we work with about, I think 32, 33, you know, large nonprofit organizations across North America primarily. And basically what we do for them is try to engineer what we've found from our research and, you know, from our testing that delivers consistently better results. I'm curious. I want to make sure I actually phrase this in, in the right way. There are best practices out there. There's a lot of stuff people can read about how to craft an email, how to put together a website, things like that. And I'm sure a lot of a lot of that's been validated by the studies you've done. And I'm sure you've uncovered some new things as well. What's what are a couple of insights that are not industry best practice at this stage that you've uncovered through the research that you think organizations ought to pay attention to? I'll, I'll give you like you know one one quick example. So one of the macro findings from our research <clears throat> is going to sound simple, but it is actually quite profound. People give to people. They don't give to email machines. They don't give to websites. They don't give to direct mail campaigns. They give to people. And so the more that we can actually humanize our communication, the more effective it'll be. So what do I mean by that? So if you look at most nonprofit email solicitations or appeals, they've got lots of HTML and graphics, and images and big clickable buttons. If you read the copy, it sounds like it's written from a professional copywriter because in fact is. And the problem is when a potential donor sees that in their inbox, all they see is somebody trying to market to them. And the problem is that people don't want to be marketed to, they want to be communicated with. So one test that we've run with dozens of organizations, we've done it in different countries, we've done it in different languages, is scraping away all the marketing veneer, getting rid of the images, getting rid of the graphics, getting rid of the buttons, writing a, a plain text email, and even rewriting the copy so it sounds like it's from one human to another human, 300, 400% increase in donations when you take that approach. So like it's things like that of like just simply humanizing communication. I'll give you one another example. On donation pages, if you look at most nonprofit donation pages, they have very little copy. And the reason why is they want it to be clean. By the time somebody clicked the donate button, they're, they're ready to give. So I just want to get out of their way. I want to reduce friction. That's not true because less than 25% of people that hit that donate button actually complete the transaction. So the reason why they don't complete the transaction is because they don't have a grasp of the value proposition. So actually like adding copy to the donation page, if you look at a lot of the donation pages that we've tested, they have lots and lots of words on them. And that produces significantly better results than very few words because it gives people, it anchors them to that value proposition and helps them take that with them all the way through the transaction. This is something we've tested with multiple organizations. So. The one rule that all of us have learned is like, you never want to disrupt somebody while they're trying to complete a transaction. Anything that you do that could cause them to second guess that could be a bad thing. So as somebody goes through and they've gotten through like the bulk of the work, they filled out the payment information, they've selected how much they're going to give, they hit the submit or donate now button. 
what we'll do is we'll have a pop-up that comes up and it'll say, hold up a second, like before you actually complete your transaction, can I give you something to think about? Which is a super big risk, right? Because you're disrupting the transaction that could steal away from transactions. Instead of giving whatever, $100 a day, would you consider giving $15 a month? And that will you know, help create more of a sustaining impact and value proposition. No, I don't. And it just does the one-time donation. Yes. And it automatically like goes and factors all the math and changes it from a one-time gift to recurring gift. When we've tested that, we've seen like between 36 and I think it was 64% increase in recurring gifts. And the most important thing is it didn't actually diminish with any sort of statistical validity, the percentage of people that actually gave a gift. So it has no impact on whether or not they give a gift. It's just actually increasing your, your recurring. So huge, huge opportunity. And you know something I think is now being baked into a lot of giving software to make it more of a standard feature. If it's not baked in, how hard is that to do? I'm just asking because the numbers in terms of you know, increasing recurring revenue, the value of that specific gift, all those things, like it's a no brainer thing to do. The value is clearly there. So for organizations that have not done that yet, how hard is that to implement? It does take a little bit of programming, right? If your giving system doesn't do that natively, you're going to have to do some programming work to do. I mean, it's not overly complex. It does take a little bit of extra customization and configuration. What are some of your favorite studies that have come out of Next After? Even if they're not super widespread or very profound, like what are some interesting little insights that you just personally relate to? The very first like mystery donor study, I did it in partnership with Brad Davies, who I think you know, oh, he's yeah. a mutual friend, but he was working at another agency at the time. And we had this idea of doing this thing. And that was really, that was meaningful for me because it was like the first one of its kind. And I did a lot of the writing. I put in a lot of like hours on that thing. So I have a lot of like personal pride in that. And, you know, he and I spent a lot of time just like, you know, having to evaluate all these different value propositions that came back. So that was actually really meaningful to me personally, that, that particular study. Gotcha. Great. I've noticed the phrase, I don't know if this came from you or if it's a next after thing, but the line really resonated to me that you're on a mission to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. Is that yours or is that next after? It's like, how did that idea come about? Yeah. We started off just, you know, being a company, a business. And somewhere along the way, we, we realized that, you know, we may not be a nonprofit organization, but we're very much a cause-based organization. And our cause is to decode what works in digital fundraising, get it into the hands of as many fundraisers as possible so that we can achieve what is our cause, which is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. The, the, the net effect of making people more effective, of communicating their value proposition, connecting people to opportunities to invest in impact and the changes that they want to see made in the world. That's a beautiful thing. That's something that can captivate my imagination for the next 40 years. And so that's actually our our mission and our vision uh, statement. And out of that, everything we do flows. So we don't have to go and create all these resources and spend so much time like trying to put that in, into the marketplace. But we do that because like that's achieving our mission. And that's helping us reach our vision. Yeah, I, I think along those lines too, you guys are very transparent as an organization. We talked a bit last time about giving away your best stuff mm -hmm. to, to force yourself to constantly raise the bar. It's a little bit of a trap, I think, that nonprofit organizations can fall into where they, they resist that transparency. They, they keep you know certain secrets guarded and things like that. Have you noticed this in the space? No, I mean, that's just like human nature, right? We have our trade secrets and all of our kind of like special secret sauce, but I'd hate to think that erring on the side of generosity is going to come and bite you in the ass. You know what I mean? Like I hate that, that like to think that like being generous is a bad strategy for life and that it's going to actually come down and 
take you down someday. But that's actually one of our values is err on the side of generosity. And we have different ways that we try to live that out. Has that been like a no-brainer baked into the culture from the beginning? Or did you face challenges internally as you guys were growing in terms of enforcing that, that transparency and that level of openness? I don't think so. I never look at people as like competitors, they're industry allies. Like we're all working together for like the same cause. So like, why would I not share that with somebody else? Why would I not be open and transparent? And, and to you know what we talked about before, if I give away my best stuff today, that puts positive pressure on me to come up with something better tomorrow. And I want that ingrained inside of our culture. I want people to like never be satisfied, you know, where adequacy is the enemy of excellence and good's the enemy of great. You know, we're constantly trying to figure out what's next after. I think that's a good thing. Are there ways or, or times in the evolution of next after where you guys have struggled with something or had some interesting successes and you just look back and like, it's that raising the bar thing that got us through? Yeah, all the time. All the time, for sure. I mean, like, you know, we, we put on this big conference every year. It gets more and more expensive. It's more and more outlandish, like the pageantry. <laughs> I mean, I think like two years ago, we turned the Ellie Cockins Opera House in downtown Denver into a circus tent and like literally put on a legit like circus performance with acrobats and stuff flipping around on stage. So, I mean, that to me, that that's the fun part of trying to figure out like how to make it bigger and better. So getting back to the next after work, what are the biggest pitfalls you just see in the space that you just on a visceral level just want to sort of correct? I think first and foremost, we have to change our vernacular. You know, we use the words like blast. I'm going to go email blasts and I'm going to you know, hit my targets. And we have to realize that the people on the other side of the screen or table or, you know, envelope or whatever, like they're living, breathing, complex human beings. And we need to, to treat them as such. Donors aren't stupid. They're not going to like give a donation just because you tell them to, right? You have to give them, again, that compelling reason or the value proposition for doing so. We have to change the way that we think about our supporters. Anything else come to mind or is that the biggest pain point for you? I think the other thing is taking big risks. One of the things that we did, we partnered with Dan Pilata and we put his like bold training inside of our institute. And I got to interview him during our virtual summit, I guess it was this year. And he encourages people. He's like, look, we need to think bigger and bolder about our organizations and stop settling for the glass ceilings that you know we have over our heads, right? And we need to blast through. I think that that's something that is just so encouraging and exciting and just like thinking about like, how can we push past, you know, what the standard is and, and come up with a new standard? I think that works on so many levels. You mentioned Dan's content. Like, I think that TED Talk he gave was 15 years old at this point. Like the idea right. of shifting away from the overhead yeah. comment. Some people are paying attention to it. Some people really took that to heart. But I, I feel like it's still an ongoing struggle. If it's things on, on that level where it's making a philosophical cultural shift in your organization, taking a big risk, or even as simple as changing your donation flow to include a call to action to do recurring instead. How does somebody who is seeing a challenge at their organization wants to make a change they feel like there's going to be resistance to? How do they have that conversation? How do they justify to the, to the stakeholders you need to get past that it's worth investing in this new thing? See, that's where I think like testing is so valuable. What we like to say is like, we'll go in like optimizing somebody's donation experience and we end up leaving optimizing the culture of the organization. Because like what testing does enables you to mitigate risk and to try something new and to be able to prove it with data. And what we say is look, every single test begets learnings, which opens up new opportunities for breakthroughs down the road. That's my encouragement is start testing more. Start trying to be able to take smaller risks, and then those will lead to greater opportunities to, to make some more you know, fundamental shifts in, in how you approach your work. I think that's a great point is taking smaller risks and seeing some basic successes will also help to breed trust with the people that you need to convince. Exactly. 
I've been a fan of Next After's research for a long time and, you know, was excited to, to have this call. And certainly I'm a believer in the scientific method and doing these experiments. But I think there's also a place for gut sort of actions. You see what the data says and you're like, I actually just, my spider sense is telling me that this is what's out there, right? How do, how do you guys, and, and you know, you personally with the organizations you consult with, as well as like, you know, in the research that you do, you know, how do you navigate that sort of gut versus data attention? And, you know, how do you decide what to do based on pure data or pure gut or somewhere in between? People talk about the relationship between the art and the science of, of fundraising. So the art is like all of the crazy ideas that we could possibly have, you know, our gut instincts or our visceral responses. but we try to validate those with the scientific method and data. You use art to come up with something new, but test it and be able to make sure that your gut's right. Because oftentimes we can be led astray by our intuitions. What's the path not taken? What do you think you'd be doing right now professionally if you were not working on Next After and the Human Coalition and your other projects? I think I would be in the culinary arts. Really? Yeah, I, I love to cook, man. That's one of my passions. I, I asked for cooking lessons for my birthday. I love like hospitality and entertaining. And when people come to our house, like I'm in the kitchen the whole time and I'm in all my glory. So yeah, I, I think I'd probably be a cook. <laughs> See, I, I knew I knew we'd get along. I, I loved cooking too and making cocktails and hosting and things like that. Outside of the stuff you're currently working on, what is the most important cause that humanity can be tackling right now and why? Outside of what I'm working on, because I, I think the cause of generosity is is one that's that's worth going after, right? Because like you think about it, with all like the commercialism that we live in, where every single message we receive is all about feeding our own appetites and pleasures and stuff. What philanthropy does is it takes us out of that, and it gives us this choice to make: Do I want to provide for myself something that I probably don't really need? It's more something that I want, or do I want to try to meet the needs of somebody else. And I think that that's like so beautiful. And if we can get more and more people to experience that, the miracle of generosity, like it becomes addicting, right? I mean, it becomes like really, really kind of like habit forming. And, and then all of a sudden, like it overflows into other areas of your life. And I just think that that would like totally change the world. I've actually been amazed with the first couple of shows that we did. The answer was usually environment or it was some specific established cause category. Over time, like I've just been amazed at how many people have said work on yourself, mm. self-care, meditation, like improving yourself as a person and your overall happiness so that you can then, you know, have a bigger impact in other areas. What's next for you and, and for Next After? One thing that we've done recently, we appointed a, a Next After fellow at the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy in the UK. Adrian Sargent and Jen Shang head that up and they're pioneering all the research in philanthropic psychology. And so what our fellow is doing is, is they're, they're translating a lot of the stuff that they're doing on the academic theoretical level into things that we can go test online. So that's been really, really fun. We're just getting started with that. We've run a few different experiments uh, based on like communal theory and some of these other things that they've been, been working on. And I think it's really exciting. I think what we're going to find is that there is an opportunity to point nonprofit organizations to data that suggests that, yes, there's things you can do right now to game the system and to meet your calendar year-end goals. But those are things that are not necessarily aligned with building lifelong partners with your organization. And if we can prove that and show them a better path and a better way, at least based on their work, not only will it you know, be better for the nonprofit organizations, give them more resources you know, into the future, but it leaves the donors feeling better about themselves, right? Where giving is actually building their identity as opposed to taking it away from it. 
I'm excited to see the the data that comes out of that. And one of the things that I talk a lot about with clients is you can look at all the best practices and all the statistics that you want to and be concerned about donor churn and all that stuff. But if you, if you focus on making every single touch point with a supporter, a positive one that builds that relationship versus subtracts, I feel like most of the most of your challenges as far as like human capital and, and revenue are going to be pretty much taken care of. Yeah, I agree. When you're ready to hang it up, you've, you're done with the work, ready to go on vacation, go back to Florida or wherever. And what would you like to have accomplished? Like what, if you could have done one thing to make it all worthwhile, what would that thing be? That we would be able to like somehow, some way decode at least a part of what inspires people to give. That's the thing that I'm obsessed with. I don't know if that's a solvable riddle, right? Like why do people give is the thing that keeps me up at light. But if we can begin to like decode a piece of that, I think that would be awesome. Do you have any guesses? <laughs> I think what we're going to find is it's it's different for everybody, right? Some people give because it helps them to belong. Some people give out of a sense of guilt or out of anger, right? I mean, there's all these different kind of like motivations, but it's like, what is the best way to lead people into you know the miracle of generosity? Man, that's the question. How can people who are hearing this and want to get involved, support the work you're doing, contribute, hire next after? How can they reach you guys? Certainly can find us online at nextafter.com or they could find me on Twitter at Digital Donor. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about Tim by checking out the Next After website or by reading the show notes on causeandpurpose.com. Also, keep an eye out for information on Next After's annual NIO Summit, where you can learn the latest trends in online fundraising and digital marketing and network with industry experts. Please join us next time when our guest will be Shannon Farley. Shannon is the co-founder and CEO of Fast Forward, a nonprofit accelerator program that mobilizes the funding, resources, and support that tech nonprofits need to create positive impact at scale. Shannon has had a fascinating life and career and has impacted the lives of tens of millions of people throughout her work, including building the largest network of millennial philanthropists ever. Shannon's episode also kicks off a new genre of content here at Cause and Purpose, featuring the work of founders and organizations in their earliest phases of growth. We can't wait to share more information on that in the weeks ahead. Some really exciting stuff. Until then, Cause and Purpose is a production of Moonshot.co. On behalf of myself, Tim, and our entire team, thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait to connect with you again soon.